Welcome to the New Models Podcast. In this episode, we are joined by Arthur Jones and Giorgio Angelini, the filmmakers of Feels Good Man, a documentary coming later this summer that follows comic artist Matt Fury and the journey of one of his characters, a sad frog named Pepe. The film is extremely powerful, revealing complicated human narratives and experiences as they intersect with a cartoon turned into a hate symbol by a digital medium determined to codify everything into absolutes. It's a film that shows nothing is static, nothing is simple, and that the internet is real life, but in a way far different and far more complex than proponents of such proclamations tend to consider. There's a near quasi-religious concept that lies close to the heart of New Model's core ethos, and that concept is the mess. Seek any truth with honesty, and one will eventually end up in the mess. The mess is often beautiful and tragic and unable to be untangled. Feels Good Man finds the mess in Pepe the Sad Frog, offering beauty, tragedy, love, and hate. And by reminding us that nothing ever stays the same, it even offers hope. I'm Lil Internet, joined by New Models co-hosts Carly Busta and Daniel Keller. Our guests are Arthur Jones and Giorgio Angelini of Feels Good Man. Let's get into it. Welcome to the New Models Podcast. Today, we are speaking with Arthur Jones and Giorgio Angelini, who are the filmmakers of Feels Good Man, which is a documentary that's nominally about Pepe the Frog, but is uh, really a lens for understanding the past 10 years, or even really the past 20, like the post-millennial time. So it premiered it premiered at Sundance to much acclaim, and it's also been a part of a couple other festivals, including CPH Docs in Copenhagen. It comes out this summer, I believe in August. Is that still the plan? Yes, it will be widely available late summer, early fall. Cool. I guess, first of all, how are we finding you? (laughs) I don't know. Thinking back just like the last two months, like Arthur was stuck in New York right at the beginning of the shutdown, heading to Europe to do a bunch of film festivals that all just kind of like day by day, each got canceled. Uh, yeah, we were on our way first to Greece and that one got shut down. We changed our tickets to Copenhagen oh my God. and that got shut down. And then it was just dominoes. Then we came back to Los Angeles uh, and then immediately got sick with COVID because we've gotten it in <laughs> New York. But luckily we didn't have to like go to the doctor. But yeah, it was a really, it's, it's obviously a super unique moment to take an independent film out into the world. Yeah, you, for sure. Are you going to put like co in your bio <laughs> when you release it? Totally. <laughs> 
As a way of beginning, I wonder when did you first feel like you were the ones to make this documentary? Because of course, I mean, it was on everyone's mind. This is such a crazy phenomenon. It's a device to understand what's happening now. It's a huge undertaking. You know, this movie came out of my relationship with Matt Fury. And I would see Matt and I would ask him about seeing Pepe on the internet because, you know, especially in that like 2015 moment in late September, early October, when Pepe was supposedly used by the Umqua school shooter. And then two weeks later, Donald Trump retweeted an image of himself as Pepe. You know, I had mentioned that to Matt and Matt at the time was, he's not a terribly online person. And, you know, we'd had like a couple conversations just about Pepe as a meme. And at a certain point, it just kind of became obvious that the Pepe baggage was such that we weren't going to really do like a wacky cartoon or something together. And um, we were going to do a collaboration that a documentary would maybe make sense. Um, because I understood the indie comics community that Matt was coming out of. I had bought boys club zines like in the mid 2000s. But then also I'd grown up very conservative, conservative family, small town in the Missouri Ozarks. And I felt as though some of the stuff that was happening on 4chan and in the reactionaries online message board communities was something that I sort of recognized from my own upbringing. So the movie really just seemed like the perfect Venn diagram of the things that I was interested in, you know, the, the zine culture that I had like, you know, been a fan of and participated in, and then also the politics that I was obsessed with. And Giorgio was making a film called Owned, A Tale of Two Americas, that was really about post-war housing policy in the United States and about redlining. And uh, we had met through some mutual filmmaker friends in New York, and he had asked me to help do the animations on his film. And I really thought that when I was starting the process that I needed some like talented and experienced people to help me bring it to life. And Giorgio was one of the very first people that I brought in. Um, I did sort of a series of long interviews in late 2017. And then the film took about two and a half years to complete which is actually pretty small for a documentary, yeah. especially one that maybe is as ambitious as this. Yeah, Arthur and I were finalizing Owned at the end of 2017. So as I was delivering, Arthur was like, hey, I've got this weird idea for a documentary. Do you know who Pepe the Frog is? And having spent a tremendous amount of time in the years prior in my maybe more depressed state, I spent a lot of time on Reddit and was just sort of familiar with the meme through there. But when we first talked about it, we ended up talking for like two, almost three hours. I, I remember walking almost the full extent of like from Greenpoint all the way down to Dumbo <laughs> with Arthur, just with all these ideas kind of racing through my head about like the possibilities for what this film could be. Um, it's fall of 2015. You're saying, okay, Matt Furry's a friend of mine. I'm watching this thing happen to something that he created. It's pretty weird. I also sort of understand the coordinates around it. What did the process look like between then and when you started filming? Like, how did the narrative begin to take shape? Because yeah, was there a, I'm, I'm wondering right. also about the script. Because it's one that I imagine sure. must have changed a bunch of times. It changed so much. I mean, well, well let me start with a story. My niece is the same age as Matt's um, daughter. And we were taking the girls to like have a play date at a park in Los Angeles. And um, afterwards, we went to this pizza place called Two Boots on Sunset. And Matt's best friend, Chris, who's in the documentary... Um, was working there at the time, and he has a Pepe the Frog tattoo on his bicep. And Chris told us the story about how the night before someone had come in after the bars had closed and seen his tattoo and accused him of being a neo-Nazi. Oh and I could just sort of see 
Matt turn white for a second. He was so disappointed. I think that was kind of the moment that the two of us initially bonded on this idea of doing a project around uh, Pepe the Frog so that people could really understand the character and the context that he had originally intended. I had never made a documentary film before. I had worked on as a motion graphics artist on a number of documentary films, and I'd always been a fan of the medium, but um, I felt kind of a unique calling to the story, I think. The process initially started with me um, writing a 40-page document, basically. I mean, almost none of that ended up being in the final film. It was just kind of me exploring all the different directions that the film could take, because the film really is this stylistic collage in the same way Pepe became, you know, reappropriated and reproduced over and over again on the internet. We really wanted the film to have like a similar viral intensity. Also in that period of time, like Matt is really into the California psychonauts. So I was listening to a lot of like Terrence McKenna, Ram Dass, things like that, that I'd honestly never really listened to before, trying to think about maybe if that would be kind of a more philosophical end to the film. And then at a certain point where you realize that we needed to play the narrative a little straighter. And then after that, I hit 4chan. <laughs> and I spent several months ghosting on a variety of forums in 4chan, mostly R9K, mostly Poll, uh, the Fitboard, different places like that, trying to get some sort of just like understanding about what 4chan meant to people who were on those boards. Um, I'd seen a lot of films about the internet during this time period when I was researching, and I felt like none of them really kind of spoke to the emotionality of the platform, about how emotions can kind of coalesce amongst a group of people that are very far apart from each other um, and start to shift and morph and change. So that was the beginning of the process. And then as soon as we started filming interviews, that document that I'd written immediately became obsolete. Because really, when you're making a documentary, you have to let the story come to you. You can't impose your will on the story quite as much as you would initially think you could. And while this was happening, Matt was also figuring out ways to like start to enforce his copyright. So basically, copyright was the only way he felt like he could really do anything. And that was a soul-searching process for him, because no one wants to like find some collaborators and lawyers. He didn't <laughs> want to lawyer up. So um, we were kind of given this amazing third act because Matt was deciding to take some of Pepe's narrative into his own hands again, and we could document that. I thought he was particularly incredible at getting through the cross-examination in the film. Oh, it was yeah. the biggest surprise twist of his <laughs> totally. personality because he kind of seems like a sort of like quiet uh, or, or underspoken gentle guy with like a wild party streak maybe and uh, yeah, in the film, he he's getting t torn apart by the uh, defense's lawyer, I guess. Alex Jones's lawyer. Alex Jones's <laughs> lawyer. I don't know if that's spoiler alert, but um, he was incredibly <laughs> savvy and and at holding it t all together. Yeah, that, that was a a big uh, cheering for the hero moment. Well, I think it's like it's built into Matt's character. He's like a bullshitter kryptonite because he just <laughs> he's just kind of deadpan, and you, you can't be funnier than him and like he kind of just exposes the absurdity of the entire situation by not taking the bait because that's like exactly how Alex Jones and his ilk survive it's by trolling people and like Matt's just like nope not gonna happen <laughs> with yeah, a smile Matt, too with like a smile that's what, <laughs> yeah that's he does it with charm I, yeah I, I have to say like I've been in a number of situations with Matt and he never really changes for anybody you know like he's someone that just is kind of always himself so that deposition went on for four hours. 
and Matt never really breaks during it. When you watch the film, it gave us a couple really nice things. The first thing, it gave us like real conflict. Structurally within the movie, it kind of works like, you know, a shootout or a fistfight or something like that. We're able to have like a moment of real conflict. But then also you get to, I think, kind of just see like Matt's resiliency and sweetness um, in a way that is like really pure, which I hope will be like inspiring. If you were a young person, and I do think this movie will be seen by a lot of people that use Pepe, maybe in their teens or something like that. I think it's kind of an inspiring moment because you get to see Matt live an uncompromised way. Um, you know, he's going through this shitty circumstance, but he's still being himself throughout it. Yeah, I, I'm glad that scene worked for you. And it also really allowed us to kind of expose that moment for what it was, which is farce. It's a farcical moment. Also, the irony, of course, that this is the first substantial amount of money that he made from, from Boys Club or from any of these characters is from this lawsuit. It's sort of crazy and that we only get to that end. Um, has any of these other lawsuits resulted in settlements, you know, or is it just the Alex Jones one? Well, for the most part, Matt, t- to be clear, when Matt's seeking legal action against these different people that have used Pepe either for like propaganda, hate speech, it's usually basically the equivalent of a cease and desist. Right. If he can prove that someone made a certain amount of money from a particular little item that was sold, he will uh, ask for basically that amount. So there was a kid's book um, that a guy had made sort of in the post-Trump uh, inauguration moment. But Matt was basically able to get the money that that guy had made on the book, which was not very much, you know, maybe a couple thousand dollars. And Matt just um, donated that. Part of his settlement with Alex Jones was then donated to like a Save the Frogs campaign. I think there was like, I think it was a, I think it was a fourteen or $15,000 settlement, which is not that much. But Alex Jones had made about $12,000 from selling the poster. So Matt was able to recoup that amount of money and then um, he made a little bit on top of that and then that money went to the Save the Frogs uh, charity. So, um, I mean, the nice thing about Matt sort of taking control of his copyright is it now does give him options to maybe control the character in the marketplace if that's something that he chooses to do. But this was something that wasn't like a financial choice on his part. And if anything, it was kind of, I think, Frustrating for him because when the lawsuit was happening, there were people, you know, within his own community, they were like, oh man, you should have got millions of dollars for libel and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And the reality was Matt just wanted him to stop selling this dumb poster that he found like aesthetically disgusting. He didn't yeah, like it's such it a looked. bad poster. Like, a double poster. Trump. I mean, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, there was a quote that we didn't end up using in the film, but in one of Matt's interviews where he's like, he doesn't want to stop anyone from doing anything. He just needs to stop dumb shit from happening. And obviously people using it for propaganda or hate speech is about the dumbest shit you could have happen. So that's really like his baseline intention with, with this stuff. You know, so on one level, this documentary is a story about Pepe the Frog. He sort of escapes from Matt's hold and he lives a separate life. But on another level, it's an intergenerational story. In a way, like, you know, you, you open the film with these images of Matt as like this cool braver kid with like elephant pants and like wraparound glasses. And, you know, he's, he's, he, he looks, he looks great. Like he's really handsome. Like he's cool. Like he, you would want to hang out with him. And you know that like for his generation, he's like, he's kind of like the model of like someone who gets it for the, that generation. And, and I, I, that's my generation. So I really relate to that. And I feel like I spent time with people who 
have a similar energy. You but, describe them as this like Sesame Street generation, the colorblind generation. The color, right, like the, the utopia of the 90s, the no logo, the desire for like DIY ethos, K records, like believe you can make a better world through like doing it yourself. Ska. Ska, I, mean, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Not noise music? I always, I just connect them to being, an, I always imagine like it being drawn in a basement at a noise show in 2004 or something, but I guess it's different reference point. I, Matt, well, just, just to jump in, yeah, Matt was very influenced by all of that sort of like Providence, Rhode Island, like Fort, Fort Thunder. Thunder. Right. And also Paper Rad Paper and stuff Rad. like He's that. He's very Corey Archangel. I was like, he reminds me of Corey Archangel. They have a similar vibe for sure. Positivity. I, you know, I think it's also like, just to draw like an aesthetic line, like, you know, that's the reason why Boys Club resonates with people is because he does sort of look like this deformed Muppet. Like there's something about him that there's something about the character that feels innately nostalgic. I think to yes. people, um, they recognize him as sort of like this residual echo from the consumer culture that he grew up in. Uh, right. And it's like, how much of it for you does it operate as this story of generational like baton transfer, like beats giving way to hippies? Or there's this moment where Pepe the Frog exists in this indie comic world for Matt Fury and this certain ethos. And then Pepe escapes and what he escapes into is kind of like the next generation's hands. A generation for which nothing can be apolitical, for which absolutely everything right. is politicized and right. has political value. Where right. every image can be and has a potential to be weaponized or represent something. And and even the loss of hope of like, like you can't actually do it yourself. Like the machine is too big. Like the idea that empire is larger than something you can stop with a protest. There's this kind of nihilism. That's really interesting idea. I haven't really thought about it till now, but to me it's like our generation maybe in a sense and certainly what Matt signifies to me now in the context of this question is like the moment of art as a progression over time that always has a context and is always building on on itself and is self-referential, whereas we get to this moment of the internet where things have no context and the people who are like online are using art without really any curiosity of where it came from and it just it comes at them and then they react to it and then create something new and it's kind of like this collage or I don't know, I guess it's art without context. It's like this break point between these two worlds, if that makes sense. I think there's a number of kind of intergenerational stories that are subtextual within the film. I think the first one is the moment of like transgressive art and culture sort of shifting from the left to the right. Right. Yeah. Um, totally. You know, Matt, comic aesthetic definitely comes from an earlier generation of independent comics artists and they had a very like libertarian bend to them. So there was like people like R. Crumb or Mike Dan or even Dan Klaus, some of these guys, there was always this moment where underground comics were underground for a reason. There was something that was definitely sort of like edgy and transgressive about them. And I think like even the, the scene that Matt comes from in San Francisco is really a, a scene that has always embraced a certain sort of like cultural wildness. And so, you know, Matt, before he enforced his copyright, he really based all of his thinking about Pepe becoming a meme around like Jerry Garcia's take on tape trading <laughs> and bootleg culture within the deadheads. Um, he really felt like, well, this is out of my control and what could I possibly do? He's not someone that really like wants to control anyone's way of doing anything. Uh, you know, I do think there probably is like a generational shift between this Gen X and millennial this beleaguered optimism that maybe we all lost at a certain point. 
And I think that like, you know, as we're getting older, we're all kind of also just reconciling that we're sandwiched between these two bigger generations. And then maybe that has imposed a certain amount of like helplessness that we feel Mm -hmm. or like lack of agency. This movie is something where you're sort of seeing Matt in real time figure out like, all right, he's a new father. He's figuring out like, all right, well, what does legacy mean to me personally? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he's now a middle-aged artist, not someone making zines in the basement anymore. He's someone who's trying to actually figure out a way to like make a living. And all of a sudden when you get like this thing declared a hate symbol, well, that sabotages your ability to become a children's book illustrator or like some sort of other commercial artist. So it was a real like moment of Matt having to like, grow up in real time. His artwork is really about like escapism. And so I think that like so much of this movie is Matt trying to figure out how to confront the world in a way that feels true to himself. The documentary doesn't have like a moralistic perspective, but if you can take away some sort of simple truth from it, it's really like if you have a problem in your life, you have to confront it. You can't hide from Mm -hmm. it. And I, I think that's something that kind of anyone can take away from the film. Um, And hopefully that resonates in like some sort of larger perspective for people who view it. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to say I really appreciate it. There wasn't this moralizing tone. You're left to make your own judgments about about how things are going. You also juxtaposed it, the worst moments right after with him, you know, his sweetness with his daughter, which I thought was really, really effective. And I think the people that are moralizing, the ADL guy, it, it comes off really just like kind of missing the point. That was the whole criticism of how the ADL reacted. I think originally was just missing the point, feeding the trolls, etc. Yeah, you definitely. There's no. You didn't feed the trolls ever in this. Like I, I can't imagine 4chan really going after you, or at least not achieving it, because I don't think you misrepresented it. Um, you were really fair. Uh, an impressive balance that you that you kept. That's really great to hear. Yeah, it's interesting too. The ADL thing also kind of just speaking back to this idea of generational understanding of art. There's like maybe three different groups you have there. It's like the ADL and their legibility of, of art and how they interpret it, and then math level, and then sort of like the new generation. And I think art has always happened linearly, and in a sense, like the new generation of artists are always kind of reacting to the previous generation. And it's always been a projective practice that always references its past history. But then something happens with the internet where you just like, there's a whole new generation of people where time is no longer linear. And so like, it just inherently mixes up all this, all these icons and its associations. And like what Arthur said, it's like what was once punk and left now became punk and right without really needing to circle the square in a sense. Like, it, and that's partly what's been so confusing about this time is that it's completely inverted our understanding of where um, opinions are forming or coming from and what things are supposed to represent, partly because the line of art is no longer linear in the it's way a, we traditionally built it. I mean, the internet presents the world as like this six-dimensional holographic universe or something. Mm-hmm. It operates that way online, where no matter what time or when an image or an event happened, what time in history anything happened or was created, it's the exact same distance from any other point. Right, which like literally renders the word avant-garde uh-huh. like obsolete, right? Because uh-huh. it's no longer a sense of in front of, right? Right. It's no longer right. the thing. Oh, interesting, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, uh, Carolyn, you said that talking about sort of this baton, and that's definitely the way we kind of thought about editing the film. We were thinking about Pepe as this baton that was getting passed sort of Mm -hmm. from like group to group. 
Yeah, we agree with you. The internet is not a linear story to tell, but we were sort of like editorially tasked with figuring out a way to tell this story that didn't feel like we were getting lost in the weeds. Like obviously like a situation like Gamergate is really a, an important thing in terms of these subcultures we're talking about, but we knew that like getting into the weeds of Gamergate wasn't going to really make this story like interesting or necessarily like relatable to a huge amount of people. <laughs> and it wasn't even interesting to us as filmmakers, right. but right. it was really, we just need to kind of get to the kernel, the truth of that. And so, you know, that was kind of our goal with the film and Pepe really just gives us this like really malleable character. You know, it's kind of amazing. You can go and just type Pepe plus any emotion into <laughs> Google and you're instantly going to find all of this source material that completely is surprising to you. That was like such a uh, unique gift to be able to talk about this faceless, anonymous generation of people, but you're able to obviously like have this avatar for this character with all these different sort of emotional states that you can use to tell this other story. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to also not just depart so quickly from morality and how that actually works in, in this film. I mean, when if, if this is shown in a theater, like... You're going to have alt-right kids and like lefty a lefty crowd in the theater together. True. Like you're gonna like I, I mean I can't even imagine. Yes, how, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. I mean I feel it's morally nuanced enough to not hedge on how disgusting a lot of the politics that were baked into Pepe, uh, how how bad they are. I, I don't think you hedged at all. And I wonder if there's any actual sort of engineering of the trailer to achieve a probably seemingly impossible feat to other people, which is actually getting a piece of content together that both sides of America could actually watch together and learn something from. Yeah, we, we've always felt that way, but in a sense, like, without either placating to the right or fascism or anything like that either, right? It's like, you want to be fair? That was probably the most difficult part for us on an editorial basis was, like, not both sizing it by any sense at all, but fairly representing someone like an incel-type character in a fair way without giving the more toxic and bad faith argumentation any air to breathe, but rather the context for which they have come to this point in their life. Because that's the more important truth to get to, right? It's not like the ideas are garbage, but it's like what's behind it is what we need to understand on a structural level, like why these conditions exist and why they keep on being perpetuated. I mean, we knew that because the film is about Pepe the Frog, there'd be a unique group of people who would be interested in seeing it. Um, I definitely thought a lot about what like a 16 or 17-year-old version of myself as like a reactionary teenager would think of the film as I was making it with uh, Giorgio and our editor, Aaron Winkenden. You know, it, it's been interesting that the handful of film festivals we did there were always like the kids that I could see that are like, all right, you're the 4chan kids. Like there'd be like, you know, a little row with like four or five guys. You'd be like, okay, I know who you guys are. And I, I didn't talk to all of them, but I had a handful of conversations and we didn't get too deep with any of those conversations. There were a couple like kind of edgy questions that got lobbed at me at, at various screenings. But I do think um, people that are, might be upset by the film will at least recognize themselves within it. And also, I think there are like some, you know, left kids that are really like particularly entrenched in kind of like wokeness and cancellation. This film also will probably like 
make uncomfortable. I think it's a film that in order for it to be good, we had to ride that line. And there's people on the right and left that probably um, are nervous about the tone that, that we achieved. Yeah, it, it was like a really exciting thing to try to figure out. We had so many good conversations, Giorgio and I, making the film about the choices that we were making. It was really invigorating. And we knew that to tell the story, we had to embrace a certain irreverence. You know, that was the only way to really tell the story. And that irreverence is going to be, I think, mostly interesting to people on both sides of it. Yeah. Yeah, we like after I think our first or second screening at Sundance, the first like fan email we received was from a 4chan kid. And the subject of his email was basically like, I used to use Pepe all the time when I was on 4chan and I had no idea about Matt's story. And like his the subject of his email was basically like how affecting it was to him throughout the whole week and how he was surprised how much it affected him and he couldn't stop thinking about it. And I think it's, of course, it's just one guy's email, but I think it is indicative of a kind of generational shift like we were talking about earlier is that no one thinks about the context of it it's just happening whatever's right in front of your screen and um i don't know i was really moved by his email and i'm hoping that that's maybe portends the future of of how people will react to it i really believe first of all that the film is immensely powerful and it's going to be really important second of all i think you did pull off the impossible in terms of not both sizing it. And third, I think what's really interesting in like your email, uh, the, the email you received sort of alludes to, is the fact that you were able to view this, the, I guess the camera eye, with, an, with enough objectivity and distance that no matter if you're a 4chan alt-right kid or someone on the left, you can kind of understand or have sympathy with the eye of the documentary. And from that degree, you can kind of reassess your own engagement and position. I mean, an addendum to that, there have been some other documentaries that have come out recently that have tried very hard to prove that their legitimacy to speak comes from proving that they were there then. And I think one of the strengths of this documentary is that it doesn't try to prove itself. It's like a very not, I mean, it's a obviously very labor-intensive documentary, especially with all the animation the range of different people that you interviewed, but it's a very not try hard documentary, you know, like you never have that feeling that you're sucking up to any of the different protagonists. And I think like that's where this comfortable distance to be able to form your identity and opinion within it, where, where you can derive that. Wow. That's real. That's immensely satisfying to hear. Yeah, that's, that's uh, great. I, and I think I will just to bring it back maybe to your original point about generation. You know, I think if like we were a little younger or something, we might have like a slightly different, you know, mandate in terms of our in terms of the editorial of it. You know what I mean? Totally. Like, you know, you know, I think that we kind of are of Matt's generation, Matt Fury's generation, that we can kind of speak to it from that point of view and not necessarily from the point of view of people that did grow up more online. Matt and I are, you know, both 40-ish and we're, you know, you're, you you have that sort of generational thing where you 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 understood what it was like before and you saw the transformation as it happened and you don't always feel necessarily part of that. Well, I don't know if it deviates too much, but like I've been listening to that Rabbit Hole podcast and there's a couple episodes that are about PewDiePie and it just seems to dovetail very nicely into what we're talking about here in terms of generation and audience and how you like form a story and whether you're placating the audience or not. There's something I feel like I've been thinking about a lot in terms of how media and the dissemination of media has evolved now to a subscription-based economy. What it ends up doing, in a way, is making the artist 
much more beholden sometimes to their audience, and it's hard it's hard to tell who like the dog's wagging the tail or the tail's wagging the dog, right? Like you become so crippled by a, a anxiety and fear of losing subs that you start to just say nothing all the time, and it's in the, you're in this constant battle of like not even both sidesing it, but just basically saying nothing and making sure not to offend. And I don't know in terms of the future of art, it definitely makes me. Uh, it's interesting to think about the models of like Patreon versus YouTube and whether they're similar or not and how, yeah. We think a lot about the question of autonomy and there's this, you know, Patreon tries to sell and same thing with Spotify or any of these platforms. They try to sell this idea of like, we're here to support independent artists and um, our friends, Matt Dryharst and Holly Herndon speak a lot about interdependence and how the word independence and the word autonomy are incredibly fraught at a time when one's independence is contingent on this massive platform, which also requires you to be beholden to a group of people in a certain way. It's a very different kind of independence or autonomy than we would think of in the 90s. Now you're either incentivized to become, to like say more and more outlandish things or to say mm-hmm. less and less and just appease mm-hmm. the middle of the road. I mean, Which I'll- makes sense as to why like cancel culture becomes such a hugely hot topic in this kind of environment, right? Oh, because yeah. like it just, the stakes are so much higher at that point because to be canceled is really to just be com- completely erased off the face of the earth in terms yeah. of like your ability to generate money. Totally. I think it's also to that end, this is really kind of the first year where I think this film could come out without really being afraid of that. I think this is like right. we're finally kind of in a cultural moment where we can kind of like step back and look at 2016 in that era, I think more objectively now without getting inflamed. And then I think maybe we could talk about the Hong Kong thing because I think that's just like an incredible conclusion. And it's like when it seemed so unlikely that Pepe could ever be redeemed, it happened kind of somehow. I was wondering if you know kind of more if there's any theories about how it happened because that kind of didn't get addressed in the film and I have my own suspicions a little bit but this is the week where I think Hong Kong is more or less officially as far as America is concerned lost their autonomy I I assume Pepe is still a symbol there right now although I haven't actually looked at any images if it's the same as it was last summer I assume he's still the central mascot of this movement which is just so counterintuitive when you think about the trajectory Um, it, it doesn't make there's no clear line that I can I can draw from Trump to that necessarily, but do you do you have a theory? Yeah, I, I can speak to it as in terms of my understanding of it, and um, just to also be clear, like you know, I mean, that was an amazing do sex machina for us as filmmakers for sure, because we were trying to figure out how do we stick the ending uh, for this film, and then it really just sort of felt like the clouds opened up, and uh, we all of a sudden had this like amazing moment. First, it's important to kind of understand that Pepe is so culturally omnipresent that, you know, during 2015, while he was being used as an alt-right tool for propaganda in maybe North America and Europe, he was very popular character in Korea, in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, in China. Um, And so, and with that, he was basically just the sad frog. He was the face of, you know, an internet user with ennui. You know, that was kind of it. So my understanding of how Pepe really became sort of used in the protest movement for Hong Kong was there was a a woman who was uh, shot in the eye during a protest, and she showed up to the protest the day after that occurred with a bandage over her eye, and she had made a poster of herself as Sad Frog with his eye shot out. That image just became really viral. 
And um, there's a num there's a handful of characters that are used within the Hong Kong protests. Um, there's like that Shiba Inu dog. There's the there's the pig cartoon. Um, and Pepe just kind of became part of this triumvirate of imagery. The other the other part about Pepe in Hong Kong is because of the facial recognition software being used by the Chinese government. People are protesting often with like masks or their faces obscured. So Pepe once again is this avatar for the anonymous, for the faceless masses, for um, people who feel a grievance. And so you start to see uh, people using the sad frog character in all these different ways. And you know, it was interesting. Like when we screened the film at a film festival, a kid who was probably more in the like 4chan Trumpy kind of world was asking me afterwards, he's like, well, wait a minute, all those, all those Hong Kong protesters are Trump. There's Trump supporters. They're all into MAGA. And I was like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> like, you know, there is this kind of um, notion within the American right that actually, if you're fighting communism on any level, then somehow you are very pro-America, you're very pro-Donald Trump. So it has been interesting to sort of see how people interpret the protests on both sides of the sort of internet, uh, you know, political uh, world in America. And you do see occasionally Trump Pepe's in the Hong Kong protests. And those are even kind of then harder to interpret as well from the Western perspective, because sometimes they're just using these images as they want the West to intervene on their behalf. Right. And so they know that Trump likes being flattered, that they know they're trying to appeal to his narcissism. And they're using it kind of as like a bat signal, like, come help us. That's so, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's a fascinating turn of events. It's also just connected to this other issue of just fan culture. You know, 4chan started as a place for people to really have like a way to trade images and sort of like fan culture that they've taken mostly from Japan. But, you know, cartoons have like a certain sort of cultural resonance in the East that they maybe don't have. Uh, to a certain extent in the West. And I think that like people have really used those cartoons as this like malleable form of communication that really fits with all of youth culture over there. I wanted to ask, I mean, magic actually plays a role in your <laughs> film. Um, and I mean, your personal opinion on the, the magical aspect of Pepe meme magic and, uh, what happened in the 2016 election, but also there's a part of me that wonders, I mean, the, the Hong Kong conclusion uh, gave the film such a perfect ending. And obviously that must have come towards the end of your entire process, which wow. in a way it's almost like the world was arranging itself magically to give you the perfect ending. <laughs> So I wanted to know how magic played in for, for you all. That's Sorry? Good. I also wonder what their other ending was going to be. Well, that's, oh, a, yeah. that's an extension of this. Certainly, like, making any documentary, like, there's a certain amount of magic that has to happen for it to really be great. And that's part of the beauty and frustration of making any documentary film is that in order for it to be good, you kind of have to hope that something magical happens while you're filming, right? Like, uh, that the world's always changing around you as you're filming. So it's this always unknowable thing that you're trying to capture and like contain. And so then it makes creating an ending very difficult because in a lot of cases you don't know when to stop filming or when you have your ending. And in our situation at that point, like we were really thinking that the end would be about 
Matt at that point was going to go to trial this case with Alex Jones, and it was actually going to happen in LA, just around the corner from our office. So like, oh, well, this is a great opportunity to like have this kind of legal battle conclude, and we'll film it as best we can, even though they don't allow cameras, but we'll animate it, we'll figure it out. And then all of a sudden, like very surprisingly, after months and months and months of being a recalcitrant troll, like uh, Alex Jones just settles all of a sudden, and then like we're like, oh fuck, what's going to happen with her? <laughs> ending and then like literally i don't know arthur it was like what a week later we wake up to just dozens of texts and emails like Did you see what's happening in hong kong Did you see what's happening in hong kong and we're like well and also in terms of magic like the so in the film there's a journalist named aaron sankin who oh, yeah. has, he worked for the center for investigative reporting in berkeley he used to write for the daily dot in our film he's the moment that sort of he walks you through the moment that basically pepe becomes trump on 4chan he had just moved to hong kong so we were able to basically just email Aaron and he was like, oh, there's going to be a, a Pepe protest near my apartment. It's going to be a two mile long human chain where every single person is connected via a Pepe. They're holding hands, but they wow. have to each of them. And we were like, oh, okay. <laughs> so we sent Aaron and this uh, great camera woman, uh, uh, Diana Chan, she, they went and just filmed it. And, and the next morning we woke up to like a Google hard drive filled with all this protest footage. Um, so that also in itself was this kind of amazing moment of serendipity. Uh, but there was a moment where we were like, are we going to have to fly to Hong Kong? How are we going to do this? And then all of a sudden like, and, but it, we literally were editing that as we were submitting to Sundance. Like we were finishing that edit the night before we had to like basically upload it mm. for the film festival. Mm. So it was like, such an amazing thing. We had tried, like Georgia was saying, we tried edits that were like very matte centric and maybe that felt a little like too California woo woo. And then we had others that felt like the sort of like, all right, here's the dystopian angle. And that didn't necessarily feel like it was going to resonate in the right way. So yeah, it really gave us this crazy thing where, you know, Pepe is just getting like thrown around the whole world and uh, pops up again in this like surprising way the notion of like the collectivism that's sort of happening within those protests is so different than any sort of like American libertarian, anything. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. it's so it just does not fit into our American Western narrative of politics. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's just fascinating. Just the icon of people literally holding hands and, and like having a, yeah, like a singular identity and, and mission. It's just completely, yeah. Antithetical to this libertarian ethos. Yeah. Have you seen any signs of it coming back to the West via Hong Kong? Well, I mean, we, we have hopes that this film will help shape a new narrative around Pepe where people really understand what Pepe means to Matt and maybe that he was a character that existed before he became a meme that did have like a story and um, context and all this other sort of stuff. You know, I think the Pepe still moves all through 4chan, but he's less loaded than he was. Mm. People no longer have this like really specific attachment to the character. At this point, he's just kind of like as Dale Baran, who was our main sort of cultural talking head in the movie talks about like, he just sort of melted into the platform. So he's still there, but it doesn't have quite the same furor. Obviously the character has morphed and memed into other versions of Pepe with different names. And each one of those like different, versions now has its own narrative, right. some of which are super toxic. So we're just going to see what happens. Like the internet, I think at this point is kind of sick of Pepe. And it, yeah. I think if anything, 
when you see people talking about this movie, they're like, oh, cringe. This is just fucking cringy that these guys would make like a, you know, a Pepe movie. That character has now like kind of moved on. But That's I think it's kind of an, yeah, it's, I think it's a really important story about how we communicate. I have noticed it kind of experientially on Twitter, like especially in black Twitter and sports Twitter, Sad Pepe specifically has become an avatar. Like if you are part of a fan base of a sports team who's been historically losing for a long time, you'll have like the Cleveland, Cleveland Browns helmet, Sad Pepe guy. Like, um, right. So. I mean, I guess it's easier to reclaim Sad Pepe versus right. Smug Pepe or Wipers right. or anything like that. Right. Also, I mean, like maybe this is talking about dead memes. You briefly cover Vojak, but you don't go into so much depth. I wonder if there's a similarly rich context in his history. I know that it came from a board directly from, I guess, a Polish version of Fortune. Do you know? Yeah, we do show that meme of like the alone together Vojak, and he's blank. I mean, he's the feels guy. Right. Um, you know, I think obviously the what is it? The NPC meme you know, became like a wilder weaponized use of Wojak. I don't know too much about his background, um, but where I first saw Wojak was on R9K, and uh, he's a really malleable character that's used in all sorts of different ways. Um, that was something we really just discovered in the edit. We didn't think that Wojak was going to be part of the story, and then, uh, you know, when different people talked about him in interviews, and Aaron, our editor, put this whole section about Wojak. It really kind of like helps you understand the mentality of 4chan in a way that's maybe a little bit more relatable than the crazy frog-looking character, um, just because he's an easier to understand drawing. Right, and also, well, just didn't never got canceled in the same way, even though it, he was used for a lot of the same purposes. And I don't know if that's just because it's a human face; it's more blank. I don't exactly know what it is about him. It doesn't have as rich of a history as Pepe, so I don't know if there would be the same story to tell as well, far as original There's no human intent. creator who it got out of his hands and yeah, it said well, it came from Chan yeah. culture, right? Right, Com- completely. And I think it's it's managed to stay like a lot more underground than Pepe, where you know Pepe had this moment of mainstream virality, normie virality. I don't yeah. know if Wojak's gone normie ever. Uh, there's also been kind of a self-consciousness with Wojak. Like people started to push this NPC meme. You know, like for instance, Alex Jones had like a, a Infowars fan competition where people would come up with their own NPC versions of memes. And you know, that's just not really the way memes work. They kind of have to yeah. just be this like organic thing. Wait, like what's that Philadelphia? That like that meme that was supposed to be like the left? Oh, gritty. Gritty, yeah. Like yeah. gritty. No. Yeah, I mean like just not gonna work. It's kind of you guys. I don't think he even shows up in the in the. <laughs> no, gritty right? not like, in the movie. He's not working. Okay, not right. for gritty though. I think gritty is like a great like a great looking character. He's a great <gasps> totally. looking mascot. Talk like aesthetically, gritty's my god. Yeah. <laughs> as a mascot, as a sports mascot, I'm all for it. But I just. Yeah, I don't know. Hey, yeah, it somehow it's always been cringe from the beginning for me. It never, I never. <laughs> yeah, certainly the uh, people's enthusiasm for like him as like a Bernie Bro meme or whatever, like yeah. that, that got a little cringy for sure. But and I mean, even us like, like using, I have been seeing this kind of like thing happening now amongst left or people that they're, they're more in the dirtbag left or the anti woke left or whatever. They're all sort of adopting the vocabulary of 4chan. Oh, yeah. And that's been something that has seems like it's really kind of taken off in the last like nine months or a year. You know, people are using like cringe and based and all this sort of stuff. So who I, knows I how this like stuff the left is all is like moving. Reclaimed uh, it kind of. I feel like yeah. left has reclaimed the word based or something like that, which I think is yeah. kind of interesting. And so maybe, yeah, Pepe is 
is next. I don't know, but who knows? Yeah, we'll have to ask Little B. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this is more of an observation than a question. Although one thing that I think is unique for the 4chan viewer is to connect the image, which uh, images on 4chan are collected, traded, used as fluidly and with as little thought as words in a language, right? And to connect the image with this human creator, with his very human story and emotions, and then how it's trickled out into all these other humans' lives, and to see their lives, understand more with them, spend time with the human beings and the people and the stories behind it. I think that just the sheer mechanic of, uh, of, of taking an image they've seen a million times and wield fluidly without any thought and suddenly forcing them to consider all of the real life consequences, humans, emotions, I think it could actually change uh, their uh, relationship with the images they're using, the way they use them, what it actually means in real life in a way that possibly they hadn't considered. I know in 4chan you get the sensation that you're engaging in this sort of pure simulation frontier that's just like where nothing means anything, no matter how offensive and terrible. And when I was on 4chan, 4chan was attempting to protect the internet from the way it operates now. Mm -hmm. It was trying to protect the internet from people being their real name, real personalities, gaining currency based on their true selves, taking videos of themselves, talking to the world. Keeping a divide between real life. Keeping a divide between real life and the simulation. Mm. They were trying to protect that divide. And I think that, um, you know... By saying things that were so crazy, like so impossible in the IRL space, that the digital space remained... That there was not as much permeability between the two. Right, and they would try to terrorize anyone who was basically acting the way that any Kardashian or any influencer Mm. acts today. Like that would become an instant target for them because the online space was not for that. It was not for the real life. It was the pure total escape. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the first thing that I got really excited about this film when when Arthur was pitching it to me, and it it really dovetails in with the project we did about housing, right? Both films are about the commoditization of infrastructures and what that does to a group of people. In housing... It had the net effect of giving some people beneficial access ahead of others and then like dividing each other along those kind of lines. And the internet is really kind of shockingly very similar in this commoditized form, format. And what it, the net effect, I think, has been is that it kind of shames us out of our capacity for empathy. Mm-hmm. And part of the 4chan experience, to me at least, seems to be constructing a very narrow, perfect, reality in which you can engage. The effect it ends up having on you is a kind of inability to feel empathy or think about others or think about the greater context. And so like part of this film project for me was really like kind of shattering that standard now and saying like, it's bullshit. We're, we're kind of beyond the separation now. We, we are at the total convergence point and we cannot build a society with these kinds of morals at, as the guiding principle, right? You cannot build an and organized society. You can't build a society on incivility? Exactly, exactly. Right. I think what um, Julian's talking about is, is a transformation that sort of has happened on, on 4chan that's been quiet. 
4chan is thirsty for a reality check. There is, uh, amongst the really like core user base of very active users um, on a variety of the boards, they have this kind of hermetically sealed family dialogue because they really feel like they're the only ones that truly understand each other. Um, and so therefore, while the dialogue itself is like extremely edgy, toxic, aggressive, the sort of undercurrent with that dialogue is one that's totally about like self-soothing. It's about commiserating over like shared grievances. There is always a part of 4chan that is yearning for some sort of like structure or hope. And so I do think this story about Matt actually being like a family man, he's just trying as hard as he can to figure out like how to navigate this kind of unnavigatable thing that's going to resonate because part of this like 2016, 17 moment within the discourse of 4chan was this moment where all of these people that have basically been lost inside the message board, they're completely lost. They don't have control of how they're living their lives because they've basically given themselves up over to technology. They're searching for someone like, say, a Jordan Peterson or one of these YouTube father figures to come in and tell them to clean up their room, put on a suit and tie, type up a resume, and go hit the streets as like a normal person. But they don't have the self-control to do that, and they don't have the emotional bandwidth to really do that either. So I do think... Um, you know, there's this thing that happens on 4chan all the time where people will be like, I'm sick of this board or I'm sick of all of you. They'll make like a post for like, this is my last post. I'm leaving you guys. My life used to be okay. Then I was enjoying this and then it got fucked up and it's fucked up because of you. And then, then as common as that is, there's also the post where people are like, hey, I'm back. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I took three or four weeks off. I took months off. The girl that I thought would like me didn't like me. The job I thought I was going to get didn't happen. I'm back. And there's kind of this moment where everyone's like, you know, they kind of have this welcome back moment. It's all done in a super edgy way. But like people, it, at this point, it's become a, a community that has all the other functions of that community. There are, you know, R9K is a board that really just is about people. It started out as a board where people were just sharing their sort of like sad sack sob stories. Um, and then it got angry and angry and more and more misogynistic um, because people were sort of stoking the flames of each other's sort of like shared community, you know, grievances. And so, you know, it really functions differently than it did back in the beginning when, when Little Internet and Chris Poole were, were doing it. 4chan was a place where like if you were an Internet user, you were your own subculture, you were a creative person who went online. There was no social media. Moms and dads didn't go online. You know, this was your space. And that was your lane to exist entirely within. And so 4chan started to get weird when it was like all of a sudden, this became like a mainstreaming thing. And it wasn't creative anymore. Like it didn't feel as creative as it was. It was a place for joke writers and artists and people that were like making these like unique things. Um, and then when they felt like that uniqueness was gone, they felt like there was a, a cultural loss that was visceral to some people. So, yeah, I feel like 4chan in general right now is really yearning for, um, it's having this real reactionary moment that you see in the fascistic dialogues that are happening within poll, but also you see it in these other places where people are just kind of like yearning for an adult to be in the room. 
So yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see how the, the subculture is going to continue to kind of evolve. Um, I mean, at a certain point, I think it's just going to peter out. Like, I think it's just like, people are going to stop going to the board. It's yeah. going to not be popular or vibrant anymore. It's going to, people are going to move to private conversations on Discord or within gaming. I think it's also worth mentioning that like R9K was, it was for primarily for people who have autism. You know, it was a big proportion of, of the mm-hmm. audience. I think this sort of insular systematic thinking made a lot of sense there. And I think a lot of like what meme magic was for them was just the excitement that it was seeping into reality that way. And if maybe they were trying to defend from reality getting in, it was just this like, it, it seemed impossible that this thing that is just happening in this box, you know, was resulting in Hillary coughing. Um, right. And that, like, so much of that magic was just like, oh, I have any agency at all? And rediscovering oh, right. that, um, which I think is, yeah, you know, was interesting. No, totally. that's, 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 yeah. that's what I was going to say, actually. That's a good dovetail. It was like, it's, it is about a loss of agency, right? And it's like feeling like you had agency in this one place and now this new group of people have kind of invaded that space and then there's like a bigger reaction against that because it's obviously an attack on your own agency that you've carved out for yourself. But this, this interesting reverberation that Arthur's talking about, about like rejecting 4chan and then coming back to it, what's behind all that too, of course, is the IRL world, right? It's the fact that like education is more expensive than it's ever been and it doesn't guarantee you a job. And it's like, you know, just the, the pressures that capitalism are inflicting on you in IRL world. And so it's like, uh, in the film, at the end of the film, we say like Pepe is an omen, right? That's part of the meme magic guy's perspective. It's like, we must listen to what it has to say. And to me, it really is that like, whether it's in Hong Kong or here, the, the vibration that Pepe is moving at is really, it's like a frog on a forum, like a canary in a coal mine, right? It's, it's, this, it's this symbol that's saying like, there is something deeply wrong with the way that society is structured right now. And this one corner of the internet on 4chan are responding to it in the most problematic ways to respond to those societal conditions. But like at the core of it all is a real critique about the way things are structured, right? I mean, it's a sad frog, right? <laughs> like ultimately, deep down at the core, these kids are sad, right? They feel exactly. ugly. Oh, they, hey, they feel hey. ugly. They feel small. They feel weak. They feel sad. And he's an expression of helplessness. Yeah. yeah. But all of these sort of reactionary groups have always preyed on people like the kids on 4chan, you know, like that was, there's always that story with like any kid that like becomes like a neo-Nazi or something that they were kind of lost at some point. And then they were able to find like community in a surprising place and feel as though they had this kind of like brotherhood. And so it's been always these lost questioning, frustrated kids that have always been sort of taken advantage of by um, these other more toxic groups. And then they're weaponized. What do you make of, um, of 8chan and how sort of the most toxic elements of 4chan got eventually kind of like were modded out because they were against the rules? They went to 8chan. And since 8chan was taken offline uh, in last summer, I guess it was when it was taken down, it seems like that must have been a pretty decisive moment when Pepe lost a lot of currency. Also, similarly, Alex Jones got deplatformed at the same time. So I wonder, like, can that, is there actually a kind of like a top-down solution here of, of moderating that actually could possibly work as far as you know, minimizing some of the harm caused by this? Well, you see it playing out right now, right, between Twitter, Jack right. Dorsey, and Mark Zuckerberg, yeah. and this battle to control, you know, quote-unquote, control speech uh, and label Trump's comments whether or not they're, you know, truthful or not. And 
I don't know. To me, it's super interesting to see this being played out at such a visible level with two titans as they are. But you see very clearly the divide that they're making in the ground, right? I mean, Facebook, as far as I understand it, has totally been, quote-unquote, limiting speech and doing all sorts of things. But outwardly, Mark Zuckerberg wants to protect his platform from any kind of restrictions that Trump might reactively place on on him. And Jack Dorsey's position is just like, oh, we're not going to participate in that. So, I mean... Yeah, I don't necessarily have the answers, but for sure, like the reason cancel culture is a thing and has become a meme, with especially within the right, is because they understand exactly what its use value is. If you are like a grifter, if you are someone who wants to prey upon the people that we're, we're talking about here, like what an incredible platform you have to have all these social media platforms in which to like draw into your circle and sell your garbage. And like if you're not being held to account by anybody, it's like giving, I don't know, it's, it's, it's it's bad. <laughs> I think we've seen that. <laughs> I mean, it definitely underlines something that's like seems simple, but is kind of a complicated idea, which is just that the internet is real. Yeah, the internet is a, the, the internet is part of our consciousness. It's not separate from it. It's something that I think probably people that are a little younger than me have like uh, a greater, deeper sort of understanding um, of that. I mean, there's going to be a lot of very curious writing that happens about eight chan that I can't wait to see other people that are like smarter and more brilliant than me sort of figure out and talk about there's going to just be a whole generation of academics that are completely in this lane fascinated yeah. and sort of turning this stuff over yeah like, i mean hn was like also just the poll board on hn was run by like a straight up nazi like just a straight up fascist hn it's, also was the most pedophile cp friendly for a long time ab- too absolutely which of course yeah. naturally makes it the home of all the great patriots of uh, <laughs> our nation evangelical saving christian i know saving which then you the have children, all these like right? evangelical boomers showing up like looking up the q trip code yeah. like well, i think uh, that's trump a, like trump is that the nexus board. of those things right so. <laughs> well yeah no yeah. But I mean, it's funny that there's like this big divide between like like Instagram people or 4chan people. But at the end of the day, it's really the same thing you're talking about, right? It's a reward-based system that just has different inputs. Like on one, where your rewards are based off the most ostentatious visual representation of your life, and you're rewarded for that, like kind of YOLO on a yacht type shit. And then on 4chan, it's the same exact thing. It's just like a different set of rules. But at the end of the day, the you know we can't pretend as if the internet is this magical thing that just was created in a vacuum. It was created by humans mm-hmm. uh, who coded it with a certain intention and that has like a very definitive way in which it operates. And it's, like, and it's shaping our value system. Exactly, right. exactly, exactly. But it runs yeah, by much they, simpler rules than, than real humans. life. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's well, there's rule sets and they encourage a certain type of posting and it is really this evolutionary um, pressure that you kind of talk yeah. about with memes. Um, there's, different, there's different types of pressures on different platforms. Um, that's clear. And I guess some platforms just generate much better content because of that. I mean, I also think that it's, it's, it's worth mentioning, you know, the posters on 4chan, they're clever. Like, it is this place where cleverness is rewarded. It's not just anarchy. There's things that work and don't work. It so, yeah, wired I mean, my brain. And... <laughs> And that's interesting that like, no, the, the people on 4chan in general are very smart. They're funny. There's a lot of good joke writing on 4chan for sure. Right. Um, but that's also another reason to kind of take it seriously where you do see all of a sudden poll moving from like a bunch of like angry kids to people that are actually reading like fascist philosophy. Kind of when you were talking about the autistic kids on R9K, 4chan is completely obsessed with hierarchies, mm-hmm. like absolutely obsessed with hierarchical yeah. 
thinking. And, um, you know, that's, that's the core of eugenics. It's the core of like kind of all reactionary conservatism. And so their, their hatred of like feminism or affirmative action is based, they, they just believe that this is like some sort of, um, degradation against earned hierarchies, the colonial hierarchy, the patriarchal hierarchy. They believe that any sort of subversion of that is like against nature is against this sort of thing. And ultimately that is based on their own sense of helplessness. They feel like society has turned against them and they have no hope and society has imposed this like terrible life on them. And that's why you just have this generation of kids that are lost and feel nihilistic in some ways has become a little bit of a political coalition. It's something that like the younger generation, I think is going to have to contend with maybe more than like our generation. I mean, when we recently published a piece, uh, Duncan Wilson's machine learning specialist, he unpacked the green line meme. And one of the points he made that was quite interesting was that he's noticed this change in this highly online incel adjacent culture where there has been a maturation of understanding of aesthetics. And instead of just shit posting, there's this idea that you're going to publish yourself as this like, you know, bronze age Adonis type male with your trad wife sitting on the edge of a boat in Thailand. And then maybe there's some like kind of coded fascist line about like occupying these places. He makes a relationship to futurism and the way that the aesthetics were these kind of normalized aesthetics. There was a, the more radical agenda or more radical ideology was embedded or encoded in normie aesthetics and is looking very different than where radical right-wing culture or like alt-right culture is now going, which is a place that can pass on Instagram. I just think it's, it's worth mentioning that a lot of this culture came out of bodybuilding forms originally. And that is very much the nexus of aesthetics and systemizing and dominance and hierarchy. Um, So I think it's kind of gone full circle that it starts in feels good man in a bodybuilding form in, I don't know, 2011 or something like that. Bodybuilding.com was always closely tied to 4chan. For some reason, at the the time, I could not understand. And dark web. I mean, I first found that, uh, right, because people would buy drugs on dark web and they needed to buy, that's the connection. Mm, That makes sense, for sure. Uh, So yeah, yeah. I think it's just like, that's a clean line to that, to Bronze Age pervert. Autism uh, creep is also, I think, really a phenomenon I believe in because people are, I mean, the world is complex. It's hard to navigate. A lot of things don't make sense and systematizing it, making code, sets of codes that explains how at least everything works every time so they believe uh, of course is a is a retreat or gives some sense of control or understanding in a time when people are increasingly losing any sort of calibration or or baseline i think you're exactly right i think you're exactly right i think yeah and the pickup artist community was basically being like all right for you people that can't really navigate reality you can't necessarily find like a woman you can't do these you, you, you do not understand the social codes that you have to navigate in order to succeed. Here is a way to do it. Here is a list that will absolutely work with everyone that seems like it's like ancient. This, right. is, this goes back to like some sort of caveman code that is encoded within us um, and therefore feels like true and you're able to have like some sense of like solace and comfort from. And it's, it's also just a really attractive mindset to men that are young and trying to self-actualize. Totally. They're just trying to figure out the world. And this is a way that like, really helps you navigate it and makes you feel like you actually have like a sense of dominance that you can yeah. carry into your everyday. 
And it's basically a fucking listicle. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. I also think it's, it's interesting also like Elliot Roger specifically, he was posting on Pua Hate, which is like the pickup, the anti-pickup artist website, which is just people who are frustrated because those systems don't work. So I think you have this whole extra rage of just like, they try it, they get grifted, and it leads to even more hatred. So yeah, that's, black, that's black billing. Yeah, yeah that's black billing. That's going from red to black. It's right. also fascinating. I mean, Elliot's like, He's half Asian. Like there, there's all different like kind of levels to him and the, his Very appeal onto the board. Yeah, that, that changed within the period of time while we were making the film. The way people talk about figures like Elliot Roger, you know, certainly going back and like exploring that Elliot Roger moment where everyone is just like, you know, all of his YouTube videos are just on mm. CBS News. His face is everywhere, and then we're sort of like as we were making the film, Christchurch also happened. So there is this very clear divide in society where we're trying to figure out how to like navigate these kind of personalities and how they themselves become memes. Mm. So that was something that we were obviously like observing and talking a lot about during this mm. as well. Georgia, did you have something you were trying to say though? Oh no, yeah, just something about what Caroline was saying about the shift in iconography. But I mean, it's the advantage that Pepe had at that moment in 2016 was like it, it was like a Trojan horse for inviting into people's brains fascistic ideas while circumventing the kinds of protections that social media had in place to prevent like more traditional icons from spreading like uh, obviously like swastikas and stuff like that. So as long as there are fascists in the world and the internet exists, I think we're always going to have this situation where those forces are going to try to create and change more uh, normative icons and subverting their meaning so that they can circumvent these kinds of protections, yeah. right? I have to be hyper-vigilant on all this because it's like that's why they're turning these conversations about Twitter and Facebook into free speech issues because they have to make it as a part of something fundamental to being a human, not what it is, which is just a private company deciding what they want on their platform or not. Right. No, we got to socialize this free speech. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Federalize the mobs. Yeah. Mods, yeah. Rather. <laughs> I, I have a question that might work as kind of a closer. I, I wonder, you know, realistically, what you all hope the outcome of the film will be. And also, realistically, maybe based on screenings you've had before, what you worry about. So, kind of best um, case scenario, worst case scenario, but firmly rooted in reality. <laughs> Damn. Um, you know, I would hope, I think this story is really important. I think this story of like the stoned frog uh, meme, which is silly as that seems, is actually like a hugely important case study in the way that we are all communicating. So I would hope that this movie that we really constructed to really operate as like a really satisfying, you know, 90 minute fun movie to watch, but I think it's also like thought provoking in a very like relatable way. Mm. Um, I do think that it's the rare kind of film that people on both sides of the cultural divide are going to watch and observe. Um, you know, our mission with this was really about media literacy. Uh, it was something where um, obviously social justice concerns and all that were like part of our dialogue, but the main thing is us trying to like understand the ways in which we communicate and then also take Pepe and contextualize him for people. Matt is an independent artist. Um, you know, he doesn't have like a corporation fighting on his behalf or anything like this. So it's really just kind of these stories of people that are like lost in the internet, both sides of the story. And I think that's really relatable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, 
I have purposely not really thought about the negative things that could happen within the story. Um, that's been something that I've kind of walled off my thinking about. Um, you know, there's been moments of pause when we have shown the film to groups of people where I could tell some part of it made it uncomfortable, made them feel uncomfortable. But I've actually been pretty encouraged by those dialogues when like someone's asked a loaded question or I could tell that they maybe had some disagreement with our point of view. None of those situations have ever gotten like hostile or weird or uncomfortable. And I hope that that's going to continue to be the norm. I think so much of like trolling is just like shaming people into complacency. And I think that it's something that we have to talk about in the open. And it's also something that we have to like, we, we can't really have part of our larger meta artistic discussion when we're taking this out into the world. Yeah, I just hope that it brings about some small awakening to get people to understand that they don't have to feel shamed out of compassion, right? You see it even with people on the left too, like there becomes this, um, it's like a kind of bullying beyond trolling. It's like a way that, makes you very doctrinaire and forces you into a certain way of prescriptive habitual thinking. And it shames you out of being an authentic, honest self for fear that you're going to get made fun of or trolled or step out of line. And so I just hope that the film on an emotional level gets people to just say, like, fuck that shit. Like, we don't have to live by these <laughs> codes. Uh, but also, uh, I hope we get uh, nominated for an Oscar. I will say both Giorgio and I were really, um, we were really affected by Charlottesville. Yeah. Um, Charlottesville was uh, heartbreaking. And that was this moment where you really did sort of feel like the uh, communities that we talk about online really metastasized in a way that um, was, was uh, fucked up. And uh, I think both of us had the hope that this movie would kind of like be able to cut through some of the dialogue about that. And in a weird way, that moment, I, I'm like a very private person. I have a lot of like social anxiety. I'm not hyper online, but I really felt like a personal need to do something. Mm -hmm. And this story was my most earnest intention of trying to like, think about that cultural moment and do something um, that stands against that kind of thinking and the way, um, you know, I don't know. It was, uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's, that's my most earnest response to the question. Yeah. I think it will definitely be used in the future to help understand this past decade where I think there are a lot of really confusing times. I mean, memes are democratizing our politics. Like it's a way that makes, it, it makes coalition building now something that's like really, really personal to people. And that's what Pepe is a case study of, mm. you know, people that are the Trump adherents are cult members because they feel as though they are participating in the dialogue with him. And it's actually making like um, authoritarianism more, uh, <laughs> more possible because of this like group think really moving online. And so um I think it's just something we all have to be aware of. I don't know. Everyone should read Marshall McLuhan. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the outcome of any of this is, but yeah. Well, an Oscar nomination. 
Yeah. yeah. There we go. There we go. <laughs> I think it's, it seems plausible to me for sure. Oh, yeah. 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 Totally yeah. If, if, Pepe got, if Pepe got Trump into the presidency, I feel like we can meme magic our meme way magic. into it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> there we go. I like that. You need to find some, uh, what are they called? Gits? The, uh, the, the, the number sequences? Gits. Yeah. You need to get oh, there we some, go. Uh, yeah, we'll say oh, yeah, yeah. Magic numbers. <laughs> seven, seven, this is seven, a, a lighter seven, question. Seven, seven. Do you think yeah. if, I, if I wrote Matt Fury, he'd sell me one of those button-up Pepe t-shirts? Are they still in that garage? Oh, yeah. Or, Oh yeah, I think so. there's boxes of them for sure. Yeah, we, we can I'll use it for good up. purposes. I'm gonna use. I'm only for good purposes. So. I just don't understand why he doesn't have. Why they aren't sold in a mall in Hong Kong? <laughs> yeah, that seems easier. They are just not. Yeah, exactly. I will say all of those Pepe's in the film, like the the Pepe's that people are holding with the eye out and everything. That's all bootleg shit. So oh, yeah, yeah right. I actually totally. have one of them. Um, Oh yeah, it's one of these dolls. Yeah, I got it from online, and I, I realized like the eyes closed, so I think that's partially why it spread so much. It's just like the dolls themselves already have the eye oh, feature built in. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it was a dog. It was a dog toy. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> the film is. I like the one that's like the Kleenex box, like the sad frog, but then you can pull the Kleenexes out of the sad frog. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, right. the film is immensely important. Everyone, make sure you see it. Feels yeah. Good Man will be out late summer, early fall. We'll let you know about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you guys we'll so much. We'll talk to you all in real life soon. So, all, all right. All right. Ciao. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to the New Models podcast. And thank you, Arthur and Giorgio, for joining us. The Feels Good Man trailer drops this Wednesday, July 15th. The film will be available for select audiences on August 28th and everywhere September 4th. Keep updated by following Feels Good Man Doc on Twitter or Feels Good Man Film on Instagram. A few things we've been working on are hitting the real world this week. The 2010s Decade Brain Timeline we worked on with the brilliant minds of our Discord got a remix with artist Bjarne Melgaard a broadsheet version is included in the Rena Spallings exhibition, Sewers of Mars, which is on view at their New York gallery now until August 8th. If you live in Berlin, New Models is presenting our follow-up to Sim Society at Trauma Bar und Kino this Thursday, July 16th. New Models Sim City will feature a lecture by Strelka researchers, Pierce Myers, Philip Mon, and Brian Wolf and the world premiere of Richard Kennedy's opera, Fubu Fuku. The coronified occupancy is extremely limited. For tickets, visit traumabarundkino.de or facebook.com slash traumabarundkino. To hear more and get intimate with new models via our Discord community, visit patreon.com slash newmodels. See you next episode.